I am especially excited to welcome a speaker who's truly one of the exceptional stylists of our time, a man who can pick up a blank sheet of white paper and turn it into a performance space. Uh, the great 20th century artist Paul Clay once described drawing as taking a line out for a walk. Now, Jules Pfeiffer doesn't just make his lines walk, he makes them dance. What's more, for almost 60 years, his cartoons have captured the times in which he's lived, in which we've lived, politics from Eisenhower to Obama, sex from the ancient Freudian era up to the Paris Hiltonian age. <laughs> and it's been a matter of repeatedly, as he says it in his memoir, quote, lucking into the zeitgeist. Great phrase, lucking into the zeitgeist. Mr. Pfeiffer has done this not only in his cartoons and illustrations for The Village Voice, The New York Times, and many other venues, but also in an amazing outpouring of books, plays, and screenplays. Mr. Pfeiffer surely must be the only person in history to have received not just a George Polk Award for his cartoons, but an Obie for his plays, an Academy Award for animation, a Pulitzer Prize, and Lifetime Achievement Awards from both the Writers Guild of America and the National Cartoonists Society. He's written and or illustrated children's books for adults and adult books for kids, including that perennial favorite of neurotic and sophisticated fourth graders everywhere, the Phantom Tollbooth. Certainly when I was a neurotic fourth grader, I don't know about sophisticated, that was my favorite book. Mr. Pfeiffer has been honored with major retrospectives at the New York Historical Society, at the Library of Congress, and at the School of Visual Arts. Uh, before I give him the stage, I just want to say a couple of thanks. First of all, to two other cultural whiz kids who are here with us today and who were uh, largely responsible for making um, this happen. One is Susan Stamberg of National Public Radio, and the other is Alan Fern, the Director Emeritus of the National Portrait Gallery. So thanks to both of you. I'd also like to thank everyone at the Smithsonian and at Washington College, especially my colleagues from the Department of Art and Art History. After Mr. Pfeiffer's talk and the Q&A, He'll be upstairs signing copies of his new memoir that Amy mentioned, um, the wildly and deservedly wildly acclaimed Backing Into Forward. The reviewer from Publishers Weekly said, quote, writing with wit, angst, honesty, and self-insights, Pfeiffer shares a vast and complex interior landscape, interior emotional landscape, intimate and entertaining. His autobiography is a, re is a revelatory evocation of fear, ambition, dread, failure, rage, and eventually success. And I think they must be paying by the noun over there at Publishers Weekly, <laughs> but it's absolutely true. And now let's welcome the man himself to the stage, George, uh, Jules Pfeiffer. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, but uh, first of all, the first thing I'm going to do is to clear up any possible confusion. Um, that is not me. <laughs> uh, and I can explain. 
I know the resemblance is astonishing, but uh, I can clear up what uh, impossible confusion. If I did that, first of all, If I was wearing that top hat, it would be off by now, flying in midair. Uh, you notice with this gentleman that cane is floating freely, but he knows he's going to catch it. I know it would drop to the floor <laughs> with a clunk and bounce. You notice his tails are kind of hugging his butt. I would have tails going in every possible direction, all over the place. And spats, forget about the spats, I'd never succeed in putting them on. It would be just too difficult and too confusing. I have always looked upon Fred Astaire, for that is his name, uh, as a model, as an inspiration, and uh, as somebody I wanted to emulate only in my drawings because in life there is no, there is no Fred Astaire, possibly even Fred Astaire. Uh, now, while that picture is not me, here is a self-portrait. <laughs> Those of you who know my work, and that must be most of you, or I can't figure out why you'd be here, uh, are familiar with this figure. She's my dancer. She started dancing 53 years ago, back in 1957. And she's had several identities over the last 53 years. Various girlfriends inspired her over a period of time, some with big boobs, some with smaller boobs, and she changed physically in that way. Uh, but there was a long, long time, that was a long, long time ago before, before we went through some kind of gender swap. And now she is me, and I am she. She is my self-portrait. Um, a dance to summer. In this dance, I ask the question, is life worth dancing? And I come up with two answers, yes and no. I am thus inspired to keep on dancing to perfect both answers. Uh, that is how my dancer went through the years, asking questions and never being able to answer them. I was born in 1929. I was a child of the Great Depression. My memories of the Great Depression are not exactly like anyone else's. We were poor, but I don't really remember that much about it. Everybody around us was poor, but well, and I certainly knew that, but it, it did not go unnoticed. That was never much on my mind. When I try to remember now what most symbolized the Depression years to be, what comes to mind is this. William Powell and Myrna Loy in films like The Thin Man, wealth, but casual wealth, black and white wealth on the screen glittering at me, wealth with wisecracks, repartee, so much smart-ass repartee and wit and wisecracks, that was movie marriage. It wasn't my parents' marriage. <laughs> you didn't find a lot of repartee going on in the East Bronx. <laughs> During the Depression, unless it was up on the silver screen, the silver screen was the best address in the Bronx. It was where the smartest, sassiest, chicest, most attractive, best dressed, most elegant people hung out. And while they were married, 
like Nick and Noah Charles up there, my God, this was, uh, uh, and when we married, like Nick and Noah Charles, my God, love was wonderful. Love was end-to-end -end martinis <laughs> and solving crimes with your pet dog, Asta, and hanging out with the cops who you were smarter than and getting all the suspects into one enormous white, very rich, over, very overstuffed room so that you could unmask the murder and then go out to some posh nightclub and drink yourself stupid. <laughs> That's what love was. That, was. that was movie love. Knowing that whatever the crime was, you'd solve it. Whatever the problem was, you'd make it go away. It was all about self-confidence. Out on the streets of the Bronx, you could look around and you didn't find much self-confidence. But up on the screen, here, 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 here's the very model of self-confidence. Now look at that. <laughs> you know what you're looking at. That is a movie star. And he looks like a movie star. No movie star has ever looked so much like a movie star. <laughs> he knows it. You know it. The world knows it. He existed once. He was sure of himself. Never a moment of self-doubt about anything, about who he was, what he was, or what he could do, and why not. Was he ambivalent? Him? Ambivalent was not a word anybody knew in the 1930s. Ambivalent became a word in the 1950s that we began to understand. Uh, now, you see here, here. This is my character, Bernard, sometime in the 60s, and he's talking. And he says, I don't understand how it happened, but when I woke up yesterday morning, I knew something had changed. I didn't look like me anymore. I looked like Cary Grant. <laughs> I looked in the mirror, and sure enough, there it was, Cary Grant. I walked down the street, and I could see in the way people stared at me, Cary Grant. I went to the office. Everybody seemed shy in my presence. Girls started hanging around my desk, my desk. The boss offered me a job in the Paris office, Cary Grant. I called up the most beautiful girl I knew. She said she had a date, but she'd break it. She said she'd pick up tickets to the theater. Cary Grant. We went dancing after the theater. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't even know I knew how. People formed a circle around us and applauded. I went home floating. I went to sleep dreaming. This morning I woke up and knew something had changed. Back to Bernard Mergendala. <laughs> For plain people, there is no such thing as a permanent Cary Grant. Now, Cary Grant did not come to us through an act of God. Uh, I mean, sorry, Cary Grant came to us through an act of God. <laughs> now, th <laughs> this gentleman came to us through an act of pure genius. Mesmerizing, gorgeous, unforgettable, transformative genius that made us forget the obvious truth which was that he and Stan Laurel were separated at birth. <laughs> Fred and I have a history, and I'm going to talk about it this afternoon. We met around 1936 or 37. Fred was about 30. I was seven or eight. Fred hung out on the West Coast. I hung out in the East Bronx. Fred hung out with the rich and famous and horse, he said. So because of our class differences and our religious differences, Fred wasn't Jewish. My mother didn't approve of us having, uh, be having non-Jewish friendships. 
So we had to be discreet about where we met, Fred and I. We met always in darkened theaters. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight, you might say, leading to an association that has lasted a lifetime, in my case, in Fred's case, more than that. <laughs> Amazing when you think of it, how he and I connected immediately. Our closeness, our intimacy, was remarkable in its profundity and nuance when you consider the fact that we never actually met. Although experiences taught me that if we had met, it would have been an impediment to our friendship. I met Cagney once, a bad mistake. I had admired Cagney <laughs> since early childhood. Mind you, not with the depth of feeling I brought to Fred, it was more juvenile, uh, more childhood infatuation. I can see that as I look back, similar, say, to how I felt about a Tom Mix or Earl Flynn. Cagney gave me the cold shoulder when we met. Apparently, he had no interest in reviewing his success 50 years earlier as a movie gangster. So many famous people I met turned out not to want anything to do with me. <laughs> Paul Newman was, not, was, was sort of approachable, but not really. I was introduced to Redford. He couldn't get away from me fast enough. You see my point? <laughs> if you're interested in maintaining a relationship with a legendary star, it's best never to meet them. <laughs> I never met Bogey. We're close to this day. <laughs> among, among current stars, current day stars, George Clooney and I have this real thing going. God willing, I'll never meet him. Look at this picture of Fred. He's kind of comic, really. He's dressed like a star. He's got the attitude, kind of. But all right, he's not that good looking. I'm better looking than Fred. <laughs> Cary Grant just had to wake up in the morning to be Cary Grant. But Fred had to metaphorically slip into a phone booth, as if he was Clark Kent, put on his tap shoes, and voila. Now we look at that. Now, doesn't that put a smile on your face? Don't you want to be back there now when you saw the two of them for the first time? Don't you want to be the, live that loop through that again? It shifted one's life seismically. You realize that someday, someday, you thought, you hoped, this could be you. It looked so easy. It, he made it look so easy. Put on your chap shoes, and you get the girl. The possibilities were without limit. The one thing I should have been, I'm not, Bernard says, Fred Astaire. But I don't have the talent or discipline to be Fred Astaire, so I do the next best thing. I tap dance my way through life. I tap dance my way through relationships, around my family, in and out of personal crises. At times I wish I could slow down long enough for some Ginger Rogers to catch me. But when one of them comes too close, I tap dance away. Sensational but isolated I dance on. The curse of Fred Astaire. <laughs> can, we, can we roll the film, please, and see the, see the, see the film? Have you seen the well-to-do up and down Park Avenue? 
on that famous thoroughfare with their noses in the air. High hats and arrow collars, white spats and lots of dollars, spending every dime for a wonderful time. Now if you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Putting on the Ritz. Different types who wear a day coat, pants with stripes and cutaway coat, perfect. The cane. You see the way he looked at that cane? He never looked at Ginger that way. <laughs> what is he saying with that cane? What is he telling us? Putting on the Ritz, by the way, is from Blue Skies, a 40s movie starring of Bing Crosby. Bing had top billing. Fred is, if you can believe it, the second banana. He doesn't get the girl. Who cares? Fred didn't care. He got his cane. Because even when it was about, he got the girl. It was never about that. It was always about the dance. It was always about Fred and his cane or his walking stick. The girls he danced with, Ginger, Rita, Leslie, Vera Ellen, Sid Sharif, they were metaphors for who he danced best with, his cane. When the movies ended, it was hard to imagine, say, a year later, five years later, Fred and Ginger or Sid or Rita domestically with a baby, with a child, what kind of, you, you can't imagine at all, but Fred with his cane, you can see that going on into infinity. <laughs> I started to draw him uh, solo, late at night. I put on recordings, not always a stare. Art Tatum sometimes, Duke Ellington, Dave Brubeck, Paul Desmond, Chet Baker. I'd start putting down lines, not intending to draw a dancer. My intention was, my attempt was to draw a dance, to make dance on paper. And Fred was my partner. He was my inspiration. He was light as air. Why couldn't I be light as air, at least on paper? That didn't seem a whole lot to ask. Fred led, I followed. As I drew him and watched his movies, I drew some more. I began to notice aspects of his dance that, I had to, that I'd missed as a fan, but that, that came to the surface once I became his partner. One truly important aspect was that Fred didn't care who his partner was, me or Ginger. He didn't care that much about the reactions he got. He cared mainly about his moves. He didn't care that much about the public. He cared about his steps. As I drew him and watched his movie and drew some more, I understood what I thought he was doing. He was doing, he was doing what he was doing as he saw it was his job. This is what he did for a living. If he didn't get paid and paid well, he would have done something else. As he, what he liked, what he liked was planning the moves, doing the dances, doing the steps. He didn't care that much about the reaction. Whatever you read into it, he never would have done this for Ginger or for the girl. 
What he wanted to do was simply create images of magic, oneself out on a dance floor, romantically and rhythmically embracing whoever it was, whoever he was about to, who was about to fall for him. Here, just look at that, and look at, look at these four. It's magic, and I regret to say, that's all it was. It was a magic act. Fred was not satisfied to be a dancer alone. He was also a magician. What you're looking up there is a sleight of hand. Fred had got us looking at one thing when he's doing another. He's conjuring up the image of romance when he's really thinking of how this works and how that works and how you move this and how you do that. Ginger danced well enough but certainly not with any magic, how to make her more alluring, how to, be, how to make her look as if they were in love, about to fall in love, such a representation of beauty, sex, romance, and lustless lust. So many things in one thing, all because of how he guides her, how he shifts her, how he turns her, how he lifts her. Hours, hours he spent figuring this out, weeks he spent, months be, uh, he, he spent. He may well be thinking in the middle of all this, Geez, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. <laughs> now, he first did it with his sister Adele. The steps, not the romance part. We were talking about the 1920s when that kind of folder roll was done only in Greek plays. Uh, well, let me go back. He and Adele were, from childhood, a brother and sister act. According to reviews at the time, it was Adele who was the real star. Fred was the kid brother. He played backup. He was the lifter. She got the raves. He got the mention. Sometimes he got singled out for praise, but at other times, just the opposite. Some reviews dismissed him or even ignored him, heaping praise on Sister Adele, who dazzled while Fred in the background worked out in his head the stops for their next routine. She was the dazzler, he was the grind, the workhorse, the accountant of their dance act. Move step one over to column A, bring step two through five over to column C. Adele couldn't care less, she was a party girl, a quick study, pick up the steps her brother taught her, execute them instantly with extraordinary grace, then run off to a club with a retinue of society suitors to party where she would drink, curse and refuse to dance. Was it all that attention given Adele, all her flashing glitter in contrast to Fred as the associate, the lifter, the kid brother led, that led to his, his, his unusual style, which was that of a, of a self-deprecating show-off? Who, me, he asked? Are you looking at me? Oh, gosh. Oh, shucks. I'm not here to wow you. I'm here because that's what they hired me for. And, and heck, I like the clothes. I'm just doing the best I can. Look at this. Look at this. It's hardly worth noticing. If you just hang in there, I bet I can do a lot better. That's what drew us together, Fred and me. I was a who-me kid. I was all shucks. I recognized Fred and myself. Of course, he was on a somewhat higher plane. A point has to be made about self-deprecation. It was something of a rage during the 1920s and 30s. The English started it, and Fred and Adele spent a lot of time in England and caught on, and Fred came to admire everything British. The style, the dress, the wit, 
the self-deprecation. Imported to the U.S., self-deprecation became the preferred approach of sophisticates, particularly in the U.S., particularly humorists, Robert Benchley. No one could self-deprecate better than Robert Benchley. Thurber wasn't bad at it. The pitiful man surrounded by large, devouring women. Then there were Frank Sullivan, Ogden Nash. Years ago, I was friendly with the humorist and screenwriter Donald Ogden Stewart, who was a great self-deprecator. Um, he was a friend of Ernest Hemingway's, and there were stories about him being a model for one of the characters in The Sun Also Rises during the famous fishing scene in that book. And I, I asked him one, one night when we were both holding martinis, is it true that you were the model for Bill Gorton? And in his slightly self-effacing um, way, Don Stewart shuffled a bit and said, oh, well, that's what people say. But I don't know, really. I was a lot funnier than that. <laughs> so it's a kind of shuffling while talking about yourself and showing off. Fred was, the, but the, Fred was the only one to adapt that style to dance. And I tried to follow in my drawings. Gene Kelly, on the other hand, was just the opposite. Gene Kelly was not self-deprecating. That's clear. Gene Kelly was a show-off. Rather than who me, it was, look at me. Gene Kelly needed our approval, and God knows he worked hard to get it. He worked hard to get it in rain and in shine. Gene Kelly was great. So were Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland. They were also great. But they needed our love. They all needed our love. They needed a wow finish to drive home the point of how great they were. Then they ran backstage to read their reviews. Not Fred. Fred was elusive. He acted as if he was only on the screen because he liked the clothes. <laughs> but as long as he was there, he might as well, hey, will you look at this? and oh yes, this, and, isn't, and this, is, this isn't that bad, really. You want to talk self-deprecating? Fred was the only dancer who enjoyed, who enjoyed giving us the impression that in movies that he couldn't dance. In Swing Time, Ginger Rogers is a dancing instructor, and she's trying to teach Fred that to dance, and he keeps stumbling and falling, and Ginger's disgusted until Fred gets to his feet and, and gets to his feet and begins to sing that song um, that might as well have been an anthem for the Great Depression. Pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and start all over again. What was the message here? What was Fred telling us? Pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and start all over. He was singing and dancing to the entire nation mired in financial ruin. That it was all a matter of outlook, attitude. Anyone could do it. Anyone could do what Fred did. Anyone could make it look easy. Anyone could imagine himself, Fred. You, and you, and you. And you could go and find the girl of your dreams just, 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 just by dancing that way. I found a million dollar baby in a five and ten cent store. Those were the songs of that time. Go shopping, and you're likely to find the love of your life. It's that mixture 
of elusiveness, optimism, extreme grace, and a disingenuous baloney that really there's nothing to it that drew me to Fred when I was a kid and makes me no less an acolyte now. A dance to autumn. In this dance, I celebrate the winding down of the year, the winding down of the century, the winding down of my life, the winding down of all my hopes, wishes, and aspirations, which seldom get fulfilled. The winding down of this metaphor, <laughs> because it's unsatisfactory, because none of, the abo none of the above matters. I go on dancing anyway. And that is how the message I picked up from all of those musicals all over the years, that there were endless difficulties, there were endless problems, and so all you can do is keep looking, and as this lady, also the dancer in a gown, says in this cartoon, wither, she says, and the old wise man says wither, and he says to her for the direction, there's a loud splat. She comes back, he points out again, wither, he says, thither, there's a loud splat. She comes back very disheveled. She says, wither. He says, thither. And she can't take it. She says, no, 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 no. Why thither? And he says, in life there is but one thither, and it's a mile past splat. <laughs> and so I keep on dancing. Uh, thank you. Now, in preparing this talk, I thought it was going to take hours. It took about seven minutes. So uh, my timing was never Fred's. Um, so, but I'd be happy to talk to you and take questions and, um, and take answers for that matter. <laughs> but don't ask me to dance. We have a question back here. I've always wondered um, why in the middle of the Great Depression you, you, you see the great popularity and rise to prominence of someone who is the, the very antithesis of a proletarian hero. Uh, somebody up here has to be able to tell me what, what's, because I'm really, I have two very expensive hearing aids that don't work. Uh, Can you get better lights? Yeah. Okay. Thank well, you. The, th the Great Depression was full of these rival images. It's interesting to see the movies of the time. Um, William Powell, besides doing the Thin Man series, did My Man Godfrey, probably the, the, the greatest screwball comedy, in my opinion, ever made, William Powell and Carol Lombard. And um, it's a society movie, as so many of the movies made of that time were, a high society movie where Carol Lombard, a wealthy uh, a daughter of a very wealthy man living on Fifth Avenue. They all lived on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> in mansions, not high-rises, mansions. Everybody had a mansion. You didn't have a mansion, you just weren't rich and didn't live on Fifth Avenue. Uh, and she's looking for a forgotten man and she goes to a hobo jungle and she finds this bum William Powell. And this leads off into a, a wonderfully funny charming and um, movie that nonetheless reminds us of what the times were. 
And movies of that time, all through the 30s, um, had comedies and had musicals that reminded us of the times, but used it as a form of entertainment, used it to lift the spirits. One of the great Busby Berkeley movies, his best, I think, was Gold Diggers of 1933, which opens with, or pretty close to the opening, has Ginger Rogers, Fred's Ginger, all by herself this time, uh, wearing a gown made up of coins, and on a set with coins, and she's singing, We're in the Money. We're in the money, we're in the money. Old man depression better get on his way. And, and this was the message that we were going to sing and dance our way. We were going to laugh our way through the depression. And Fred was the most splendid version of that. When, we, when there were proletarian films, and there were a few great ones like uh, John Ford's Grapes of Wrath based on the Steinbeck novel with Henry Fonda playing Tom Choate in an unforgettable performance. But those, and Henry Fonda always played, as did John Garfield later on, somebody down and out, somebody beat up, somebody down on his luck, somebody, uh, and, and these, some of these were supposed to be message movies, and the message movies never delivered and are never remembered uh, long after, as well as the musicals or the comedies, which gave much more a sense of the time and the contradictions of the time. It's weird how that happens. But if there was proletarian art um, up on the screen, uh, it, uh, it simply didn't work as well. A lot of a group of blacklisted writers in the 1940s went to Mexico and put together, produced a movie called Salt of the Earth, which was supposed to be about people's movie about a strike. It's virtually unwatchable. Uh, and uh, because the, oddly enough, these entertainment films, these depression comedies, these depression musicals, when you see them today, carry a sense of the time and a sense of the spirit of time that the more well-beating, uh, more, more, quote, artful films of those times, it seems to me, didn't catch at all. That was a great question. Thank you for letting me. <laughs> I have a microphone. Hi. Um, Fred's widow, Robin, has a pretty strong reputation for not allowing his image, film image, to be used except for vacuum cleaner commercials. So I was wondering, uh, how did you get permission to... Yes. <laughs> Fred's widow, Robin, has a reputation for not letting his image be used anywhere but in vacuum cleaner commercials. Yes. How did you get permission to use that film? Next question. I'm an artist. Uh, another question? Could you, could you talk about Fred's hands, the way you draw Fred's hands? Could you talk about the way you draw Fred's hands? The way I draw his hands. They are, uh, Fred is famous for having very large hands. And I'm famous for doing scrolls. Uh, and I just, the way I did these drawings, the way I do all my drawing now, but back then I was still on cartoons penciling the strip, the six to eight panel strip that ran in The Voice and other papers, and then inking it. But when I got to do the dancer drawings, 
I would just do a, a pick up a stick of charcoal or a brush or whatever it was I felt like using or didn't know how to use, so I thought I'd try, and put on the music and uh, put myself a glass of bravery and, and, uh, uh, and started work and never knew where it was going to go. The music would tell me where it was going. And the music would guide me. And then once I put a line down, the line would tell me what the next line would be. And when it came to the hands, the hand being the extension of the movement of the arm, there was a logic to the way the hands had, the fingers had to be splayed. And, um, and they would be dancers themselves. I mean, they were, they were part of the dance. The hands are supposed to be and should be as expressive as the rest of it and as telling as the rest of it. And at the same time lead you to look at the rest of the figure, kind of an indicator, an arrow, to what you must continue to look at. So it's, it's uh, I mean, none of this is thought out. All of this is done at a moment's notice, uh, fast, um, uh, on impulse, and uh, not using my brain, but just using feeling and attitude. And I don't start to think about what I've done until I finish the outline, the basic drawing. And then when I start thinking about color, I start thinking, now, how can I screw this up? <laughs> what can I do to make this perfectly wonderful black and white drawing a mess? Because I don't want to be satisfied with just the way it is. I want to see if I can make it better. And sometimes the only way to make it better is to first make it w worse and then save it. And so it's that process, which is, it's a little like a kid playing in a sandbox. I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, if I ruin it and screw it up, I'll be sad, but nobody's going to know but me. And, um, and there's an excitement and a sense of adventure in taking these chances. I mean, that, that, that for me, that's the equivalent in, as I work, to Fred le leaping 15 feet up in the air and not caring how he comes down, because he knows one way or another he's going to come down fine. And I know when I do these things that one way or another, most of the time I'm going to save it. I have no idea how. Yes? Could you say a word about how you started with the metaphor of the dance? Couldn't get the water, eh? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. There was a volcano. <laughs> Now, sir, you're at the point. Where did the metaphor of the dance really begin in your work? Because you were doing now, comic, well, comic it's, strips. It's, uh, I write about this in the memoir. Yeah. Do I need the mic? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please. Yes, okay. I do need it. You do need it. Thank you. Damn. Uh, when I was in my early 20s, before I did the cartoon, before I started the cartoon, uh, I rented my first apartment on the Lower East Side. I moved away from the Bronx, broke my mother's heart, uh, and uh, got my first bed. Queen size, really broke my mother's heart. <laughs> and uh, I said, Mom, I, I thresh around a lot. And, <laughs> and Spent a hell of a long time have, having no one to share it with, and then 
met a young woman somewhere or other, and I don't remember how, who was a modern dancer. She was a modern dancer. She was tall, she was buxom, she was beautiful, and she went home with me. She slept with me. That's where the dancer comes from. <laughs> now, she would take me to concerts of dancers in and around the village. And in these concerts in those days, these were all modern dancers, offspins of one avant-garde group or another, and it was very important that these dancers, who were in leotards and ponytails, it was very important that before they danced, they would walk out on stage, walking like stevedores. You know, there's nothing graceful about it. And they would explain the message of the dance. And these are young women of 20, 21, 19. But their messages will always be emptiness, bleakness, despair, and grief. <laughs> and the world was over. Yeah. And I just loved it. I ate it up. <laughs> I, loved, I loved the pretense of, uh, of having an opinion before you lived a life and, and, and knowing everything and expressing it sometimes in very beautiful movements which added absolutely nothing to do with anything they had to say, nothing to do with their statement. So on the basis of that, on the basis of my girlfriend taking me to these dances, um, I began to see this as material and used it as material and lovingly, I mean, I wasn't trying to mock, or, or I was, was mocking them, of course, but I, but I was not satirizing them cruelly. I cared very deeply for uh, that kind of expression where young people uh, trying to figure out who and what they are and where they're going create one explanation that makes no sense, followed by another explanation that makes no sense, sometimes followed by lives that, that make no sense. And we all do that, and we all go on, and, uh, and sometimes <coughs> we learn, and if you read the papers, almost never do we profit from experience. Yes? You. Uh, when did you first start drawing Fred? And to your knowledge, did you ever have a reaction to your drawings? Uh, I don't know that Fred ever saw my work. I was told that Gene Kelly read me, uh, but I was never tempted to draw Gene Kelly. Um, and as I said, I didn't want to meet these guys. I probably, you know, I've been out in Hollywood a number of times, and I'm sure I could have met Fred Astaire. I could have met just about anybody uh, uh, for a period of time that I wanted to. But I had learned from not just Cagney, but from others that the letdown when you meet somebody who meant so much to you uh, for reasons that may have absolutely nothing to do with the person himself or herself, it's bound to be a misunderstanding because the person you're meeting is the character on the screen or the, uh, the, who, that, who that actor or actress is not. So uh, I really tried uh, to stay out of the way of meeting these people. Sir. Was he going to say Nerea?
I'm wondering if any other dancer had inspired you uh, uh, at all. Well, yes. Uh, I was a, a, a friend for a while with Gregory Hines, and I loved... Um, I love to, to, to gauge the difference and try to identify on paper the difference between the way black dancers moved um, and white dancers. And I mean, the, 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 the difference in body language and body movement. And, um, and I can't even define what it is. I know it when I draw it, but I can't talk to you about it. But it's a kind of, but it, it, it's, it's simply a different use of body language. And I love trying to get that on paper. Yes? I noticed that in your fairy dance uh, strip, when you were talking about dancing, yeah. you momentarily looked a little bit more like Fred Astaire. I was wondering if that was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's, it's uh, uh, I can't control everything. <laughs> it's, uh, but I did love these movie icons, particularly the male ones who, uh, for a nerdy kid from the Bronx, were, you know, were, were male images. God knows my father was not a role model, but, but uh, he'd sit at home reading the paper and say, ask your mother. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I had to go to the movies, and there was Errol Flynn leaping on a rope on a hawser from one ship to another with a sword in his teeth. That's a role model. Uh, and uh, always a big smile, flashing smile, and that mustache and a grin, and you knew that uh, he couldn't be stopped. I mean, Robin Hood, I must have seen 15 times. And um, these guys, whether, or Cagney, uh, or Bogart, um, or Garfield, there were no Jewish stars allowed in Hollywood, where the producers were just about all Jewish. Um, I mean, there weren't Jewish stars who were, who were allowed to play Jews. There were Jews in disguise, uh, Edward G. Robinson and some others. But, but, uh, but Garfield alone on screen in these Warner Brothers movies in the 40s was allowed to be what he was, and uh, playing a gangster, playing a tough guy. Play, but he was, he was a, a, a Jewish guy. And so he was, for us kids in the Bronx, a, a, a true role model. There he was up on the screen doing things that nobody else was allowed to do except him and getting away with it. What could we get away with? Can you yes. talk a bit about the political problems that you encountered in the 50s, perhaps through the 70s? Can you, was it about political trouble? The political problems you encountered. What was the question? Well, I didn't encounter any personally. I mean, but I, the, the political troubles I encountered was the, the Cold War policies of the United States of America and what everybody encountered at the time. I was not singled out in any way. I mean, I was too young to get into political trouble during the days of McCarthyism. I hadn't really begun my career. And my career really was a reaction to McCarthyism and post-McCarthyism, as I saw it. I was trying to represent the young urban educated who had come out of schools ready to live a life and have a career and as they were doing that they were afraid to speak their minds if they were liberal or on the left because that was a no-no because they would lose their jobs or get reprimanded or so they learned to be quiet 
or speak in code or not say what they meant. And uh, in other words, they, they, they didn't understand that they had First Amendment rights, and in fact, they didn't. So when I began my work, it was to represent these people, to talk about the things they t in, to talk about the things in public, on paper, on the Village Voice, that they talked about in private. So my earliest reactions was not how funny or how brilliant, but how'd you get away with that? How'd you get that into print? People, people were so censorious of themselves. Since self-censorship was a bigger problem than censorship, they, no one knew that they could speak freely. And so, and that was just a given of that time. And that time lasted up until the Kennedy election. After, I mean, John F. Kennedy uh, opened the door to dissent. He wasn't afraid of it. He opened the doors of the White House to people who hadn't been in in years, who were under suspicion. And, I mean, that was one of the uh, better, un un uh, uh, less understood early policies of the Kennedy administration. And, the, and, and it was just his personal taste. He wasn't, uh, he had the wit and he had the intelligence and he took pleasure in debate and argument and he wasn't afraid of contrary opinions. And it was extraordinary how th these doors opening up opened up so suddenly you could hardly believe that the past, which was just a month or two earlier, had ever been there. And you thought it was over. And here we are again. So nothing is ever over. <laughs> yes. Back there. Uh, yes. Is there any cartoonist who inspired you when you first started? And is there anybody who you respect over the last 50 years? Oh, it would take a half hour to tell me all the tell about talk about all the people who inspired me they, in in different fields. I mean, the newspaper strip cartoonists I loved, who have nothing to do with the way I work or the way I think, ranged from uh, Milton Kniff, who did Terry and the Pirates, who was a hero to me, Will Eisner, who did The Spirit, who I worked for, but others, Frank King, Gasoline Alley, uh, Easy uh, Elsie Crystal Seagar, who did uh, Popeye. Uh, until he died in 1938, which was a work of genius. Um, any number of strips. And when I moved into political areas, of course, an original in, in inspiration, because he was uh, 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 of my time, was Herb Locke, here in the Washington Post, who was brave when nobody else was. And, and, uh, and then shortly after, the, you know, and then he was joined by Bill Malden, who was an extraordinary and saying things on civil rights so early on that he lost papers and one of his editors said, why don't you go work for the Daily Worker? Um, and, uh, but the ones I really looked to were the old socialist cartoonists going back to the early years of the century, the 20th century, and the magazine Masses, the Masses. Uh, Art Young, Robert Minor, Boardman Robinson, uh, and some of the Ashcan school guys, John Sloan, Robert Henry. Uh, they were ex they drew extraordinarily beautifully, and they had tough, angry, uh, vituperative cartoons to go with their beautiful drawing. And I now one did not see that work in the 1940s and 50s, uh, so it was uh, wonderful to what to look at collections and be aware of what of the past we had. So my influences abound. Also, there were you know, some of the great New Yorker cartoonists who I valued highly, but didn't imitate because I didn't see myself as part of that fraternity. Um, but they're, they, they, 
the numbers of influences are endless. And they go on to this day. Anybody you like the last 50 years? Anybody I like the last five or six years? 50. Last, <laughs> you want everybody the last 50 years? <laughs> Oh, 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 you say, who do I like now? Uh, or was not that not the question? I want to I answer your question, but I have to understand what it is first. Anybody over the last 30, 40 years? Nobody. <laughs> I hate them all. <laughs> no, well, the, the last great comic strip in newspapers we had was obviously Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, and, uh, but most of the interesting work being done is being done in the alternative forms of comics now, in, in graphic novels, graphic memoirs, and I don't know what you call Chris Ware and what he does, but that's a work of genius. And, uh, and David Small, a children's book illustration, illustrator, put out a memoir last year called Stitches, which is a remarkable graphic memoir. Another one by a writer, a writer named Laurie Sandell, who decided to do a graphic memoir called My Father the Imposter, is a, a, a wonderful book. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there not being done in traditional forms. And, um, and how these people got, there's a, 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 a young artist named Craig Thompson, who a few years ago put out a 400, 500 page graphic novel called Blankets. How do these people make a living? I don't know. I mean, they spend years doing this stuff. There's no money in it. And, uh, and, and they do it for the love of it. They do it for the art. It's quite inspiring. It's quite wonderful. And there are a lot of them out there. That uh, the newspaper strip is a form, that form that I love so much and I grew up on, uh, along with old-time radio and movies. And I mean, that, 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 these are the forms that shaped my cultural and, and in some ways artistic sensibility. Um, all of that has disappeared, or mostly vanished. And, um, and what's being, what some of the things that are going on, on in their place are, are quite interesting and quite exciting, and some of them I can't stand. I mean, it's like anything else. Yes, sir.